Hi everyone, Sarah Deutsche here. I feel really privileged to spend some time with you now. I love the relationship our churches have together. But more importantly, I, I love uh, what God is doing amongst his church as one body all around the world at the moment as he's uniting us uh, to bring his kingdom to this earth that is in complete chaos and uncertainty. I don't need to remind you uh, or even tell you of what's going on in the world. You know it. But I, I do want to just go, man, never before has the whole narrative of the Western world been pulled out from under itself at such speed and escalation to such a scale that we are experiencing at the moment. Our idols are shaking. Our trust levels are being confronted. That anything that is not of God at the moment is, is up for grabs. But my encouragement to us is that as Hebrews tells us, we live in an unshakable kingdom. And whilst what can be shaken at the moment is being shaken, whether that be in us as individuals or corporately as a church or across the world, the kingdom cannot be shaken. And that is not just a, a whim of hope. That is the reality that we stand on. So I want to bring us to the book of Habakkuk to help unpack that more. Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets. It's not minor because of its message. It's minor because only a couple of chapters long compared to a Jeremiah or an Isaiah. But its message packs a punch. And the message in Habakkuk is timely for us today. Habakkuk is asking the question, is God good when there is so much evil in the world? And he addresses God twice and God replies to him twice. And the first time he cries out to God in chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So it's crying out to God in this time of unfathomable circumstance and despair and challenge. And then God answers him, but he answers Habakkuk with an answer that Habakkuk doesn't like. In verse 5 to 11, God says that he's going to do something that Habakkuk would not believe even if he was told. This echoes what God says to Isaiah when he says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And we see time and time again in the scriptures, but also history, God using the most uncanny set of circumstances for a greater good. And sometimes using things that are not of him for a greater purpose. And so then, not liking his Habakkuk complains again, and in verse 12 to 17, chapter 1. Habakkuk is, but God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How can you allow even use evil against the good? This is a huge question. I'm not even going to pretend or try to answer it. But I do want to bring us back to a cycle we see right throughout the Old Testament. It's exemplified particularly in the book of Judges, but we see it right throughout. And we also see it in the history of our world. But when it comes to God, his presence and how he moves, there tends to be this, this cycle. But God's presence has come and he's brought renewal and he's brought um, economic, political, social change. 
and people have turned to him and there's this time of presence and abundance. But over time, people forget and they neglect God's presence. They turn away from him. And the more we turn away from God, the more his presence is no longer present. It's, it's absent. And when God's absent, there is decline in the world because it's his presence that brings life, his absence that brings death. And that decline eventually leads to a time of crisis. That crisis comes and there'll be a remnant or a group of people that cry out to God to intervene. God always hears these cries and he intervenes. And with his intervention comes his presence. With his presence comes blessing. With his presence comes peace. With his presence comes abundance and a harmony that is restored on the earth. But then over time, usually only after a couple of generations, the cycle begins again as the next generations forget and begin to neglect God's presence. The decline then comes, turning into the crisis. In the crisis, people come seek God again. God intervenes. His presence comes and the cycle goes all over again. And so part of this is that we're in this cycle. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say we are in this crisis state of this cycle. But this isn't a crisis. It hasn't come from anywhere. This has been a decline that, depending on how far you want to go back, has probably been a couple of hundred years in the making. From a Nietzsche who declared in 1856 that God is dead. And therefore, if God is dead, the only thing that matters is what makes mankind progress, advance and control. And unfortunately, that same narrative has seeped its way into our church and our understanding, our belief system also. And so could it be that God is using in his sovereignty the chaos that is around us to do a greater work in his church, to call his people back to return, to let go of the things, the idols that might even look good and might even be part of the kingdom but are not God himself. And that he refuses to move until his people come back to him and humble themselves and seek his face. In the rest of Habakkuk, there are just five things that I'm going to go through really quickly, but they're really powerful in and of themselves that Habakkuk does in response to who this God is. The first one we see in chapter 2, verse 1, where God gives and wants to give this revelation, but to receive the revelation Habakkuk has to stand. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. He takes an active stance. He goes to a high place. He looks at a big perspective. He stands, he looks, he watches, and he listens to what it is this God wants to say. He doesn't run ahead, fix it himself. He doesn't fall into complacency and resign, but he actively waits. Within this, he then seeks God. And in chapter 3, verse 2, he cries out. He, He says this prayer, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's reminding himself and he's reminding God of of how he's moved in the past and he's coming before God with this longing that God would renew his fame again in our day, that he would repeat them again, that he would make them known, that we would be bypassed, 
that we would be a generation where we know and we see and we can declare the testimony of God's intervention. A third one is this invitation to patience. In chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, God says, I've got a revelation. I want you to write it down. It's a new vision. But the revelation, it's going to wait an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. There is a timing to God's will in this moment. There is something he wants to share and has potentially already shared with you. There is definitely a corporate word that he's wanting to speak over his church at the moment. And it will happen. It will happen. (laughs) Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And then it gets us to enlarge in our perspective, similar to the first one of standing and going up the ramparts, the watchtower. And he says, has not the Lord, in chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing, for the part for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. At the end day, the end of the day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But our efforts our control, our quick fixes, our responses, our reactions are only fuel for the fire. But this is a time to realise that God will have the final word and we need to act from the faith and the courage and perspective that he will do this. And then we have this invitation to silence where we are told that the Lord is in his holy temple Let all the earth be silent before him. That's in chapter 2, verse 20. That this is a time for silence, for hiddenness and rest. That feels counterintuitive to a church, to a people that are used to jumping to action and rolling out programs and strategy and effort. But what if our biggest weapons at this time is our silence? But the Lord is saying to his church, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 